right. Welcome back to another episode of the Troublesome Terps, the podcast about topics that keep interpreters up at night. And uh, we have a two-pack tonight because, unfortunately, Alex G and Sarah cannot uh, join us today. But um, we still have two Troublesome Terps here and two guests. So we'll get to the guests in just a second. Um, first of all, my name is Alexander Dreixel. I work in the EU bubble, speaking here in a private capacity, as usually, because that's all I got, as Alex likes to say. Uh, and I would like to uh, welcome my co-host for tonight, Jonathan Downey. Good evening. How are you, Jonathan? It's good to be here. It's good to be chilled out. It's, uh, it's a good time to do research and a good time to do interpreting right now, I think, Alex. Yes, exactly. Because after uh, the last episode with Ebru Dirica, we're uh, again tackling something that is very closely related to uh, research and interpreting studies. And uh, one of the reasons for that is that there is a, a book about to come out and uh, the Troublesome Terps are involved in that book. More on that later. First of all, uh, Jonathan, let's welcome our two guests. Uh, first of all, we would like to welcome Elisabeth Tiselius, joining us from uh, lovely Stockholm, I think. Good evening, Elisabeth. How are you? Oh, no, even lovelier Paris. Even lovelier Paris. Mm -hmm. Oh, that ah. is lovely indeed. When I look out my window, I see the Eiffel Tower. It just stopped blinking. Uh, That's about as Paris as it gets, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Should make for a lovely episode. And then we also welcome Michaela Albel Mikasa. Good evening, Michaela. It's nice that you're joining us. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Hi, together. <laughs> Great. Jonathan, why don't you tell uh, our listeners uh, what this is all about? What's up with that book that we're going to be talking about? This is the Encyclopedia. Oh, sorry. The, yeah, it is the Encyclopedia of Confidence. There, I, think I nearly tripped over my own tongue there. And this is, I think, probably the biggest collection of articles on confidence interpreting that I have ever seen, possibly that's ever been done. It's bringing together a collection of, of leading authors giving us articles on all different aspects of confidence interpreting from technology to training to practice. It has this innovative feature of talking about confidence interpreting all over the world about in countries that I didn't even know had confidence interpreting. So it's really exciting to see all of this expertise in one place and in one volume. Exactly. And if you're wondering why uh, Michael and Elizabeth are qualified to uh, publish and edit uh, such a publication, just a, a quick piece of background. Uh, Elizabeth is an associate professor of translation studies with a uh, focus on interpreting, of course. And Michaela is a professor of interpreting studies in uh, Zurich. So they, uh, they are literally writing the book about interpreting. And that's what we are going to be uh, talking about tonight. <laughs> um, but maybe briefly before we before we jump in, uh, Elizabeth, I know you've, you've You've talked to uh, to me on the Lang FM podcast a few years ago. You've talked to Jonathan as well. But uh, can you just give us a, a very brief sort of your bio in just a few keywords, your interpreting bio? I started as a conference interpreter when Sweden joined uh, the European Union, uh, or a little bit later, actually. We joined in 95. I started interpreting in 96. Uh, I have been conference interpreting since then, and a little later into my career, I also started doing public service interpreting. Uh, so I am a state-authorized public service interpreter as well between English and uh, Swedish. And uh, my working languages in conference interpreting is Swedish, English, and Danish. Uh, no, sorry, English Uh, French and Danish into Swedish. Difficult to keep track of all the languages. And uh, when I um, felt that I wanted to dig deeper into interpreting, I started writing a PhD on expertise in interpreting. And uh, since then, I have also been working with research and teaching and taking up a position at Stockholm University. And uh, Michaela, how did you uh, get to be a professor of interpreting? What happened before that? Yeah, I studied um, conference interpreting in Heidelberg and um, quickly realized that um, I was more into the academic um, track than the practical interpreting. I did it actually for about five, six years, then handed over my interpreting assignments to my husband, who is an AIC interpreter, and uh, thought that, you know, Having a family and um, doing a PhD and following the academic track is is 
quite a bit. Uh, so I concentrated on that and I left practical interpreting behind. But through my husband, I always followed up on what the colleagues were doing, what the market was doing, what was happening, what the developments were. So, you know, I have um, an, an idea of practical developments as, of course, of theoretical developments. And then um, yeah, I did my PhD. First, I started it at uh, the University of Heidelberg, then came to the University of Tübingen with my professor, my supervisor at the time, um, and, um, and then had a chance to go to the Zurich University of Applied Sciences, where I got this, um, yeah, where I had an opportunity to apply for this professorship. Um, and here I am, and I've been doing this for about 10 years now. Uh, and my PhD was in uh, note-taking for consecutive interpreting. That is enough to uh, scare a lot of conference interpreters out there, but <laughs> that's, that's not our main focus for tonight. Thank, thanks very much. And, and one uh, last, let's say, biographical question before we uh, dive into the topic is, did, did you two team up for this book project or have you collaborated before? Have you known each other for a long time or how did, how did that happen? We actually have known each other too well. I mean, we have met at the occasional conference, obviously, and we knew each other's papers, um, but we hadn't had a chance to really interact much. And um, I was approached by Routledge as to whether I wanted to um, edit um, the handbook. It's actually a handbook. It's not an encyclopedia. Sorry yeah, to correct sorry, you. Sorry, I will correct the but, record of that later. But there is a bit of a difference. So I would really like to make this clear. It's not an encyclopedia. It's it's a handbook. Um, because the, the chapters and the build-up is quite different. Um, and um, I have no idea why they approached me. I assume because I was a consultant editor with Mona Baker's um, uh, uh, Routledge Encyclopedia of Translation Studies. So that may be, and, and I was the consultant editor for interpreting. So that may be why they asked me. And then I thought, well, um, it's a... A very interesting proposal, a very interesting, um, you know, thing to do. But I was quite sure from the very beginning I didn't want to do it on my own. Um, and yeah. uh, Elizabeth had asked me a, a little while ago to co-edit a special thematic section in Translation, Cognition and Behavior, the journal. Um, uh, on community interpreting and cognition. Uh, so from that, I had known uh, in, um, Elizabeth a little bit. I knew she was, you know, cool, calm, collected, and competent. That sounds like Elizabeth. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, virtually, virtually. This and this was the reason why I felt she would be the ideal partner and co-editor uh, for this project. And this is why I asked her, and she immediately said yes, and we took it from there. Yeah, and it was also fun because we had started, the reason I asked Michaela to co-edit that special issue of uh, translation, cognition and behavior was that we were uh, at that point uh, two of the few really working on cognition in dialogue interpreting. Uh, and when we started looking at each other's publication, it turned out that we have actually followed each other quite well in what we have been interested in and what we published on. And uh, Michaela has also looked into deliberate practice uh, among uh, conference interpreters and done interview studies on that. And we have both been interested in, in expertise and in cognition and in dialogue interpreting and and so on and so forth. So it, it felt like this was really, you know, we probably had the same idea about things. Uh, so uh, when uh, Michaela asked me, I was, of course, very uh, humbled and happy and uh, wanted to go into that. But I also must say, and I think that's important to say, that uh, there's a lot of, of handbooks coming out. And we thought a lot about how to make this really a standing out project on its own, what would be the value of this particular handbook? And also there was a, a very good encyclopedia, I'm sure you know about it, the Encyclopedia of Interpreting Studies that came out in 2013, I think. Uh, 15. Which, 15, 15, sorry, 2015, which is a really all-encompassing work on interpreting studies. And then what you want to do is, of course, to carve out, you know, a different, we want to approach this in a different way because this has to be a work that can be read uh, by other people, by a, you know, a new audience, hopefully, but also an audience that can find something more or something in a different area than what they would have found in other uh, books in the, on the market. 
But this is also a reason why I got interested in the project because, you know, in the encyclopedia, you have these uh, entries, which are not all very short, but still you kind of scratch the surface. You can't really go into depth. And with a handbook chapter, you have a um, much broader scope to really dig a little bit into the subject matter. Um, so a handbook gives you yeah, a better platform for um, yeah, for um, for dealing with with your subject matter. Yeah, and then when we started talking, we also quite quickly both of us realized that nobody's done anything like this on on conference interpreting because uh, there there has been so much of an interest for dialogue interpreting or or for the uh, uh, other types of interpreting. So uh, the the research on conference interpreting has been ongoing. But no one has actually taken a, a whole grip on conference interpreting and tried to establish where are we, where are we going, what is conference interpreting. And we don't have a single volume which covers it all. I mean, it's, it, it just wasn't, wasn't there in, in that way. And I think that's important, especially considering the recent research that's starting to poke around at the gaps, you know, the the, the differences between interpreting settings to, to be able to yeah. carve out and say, you know, yeah. this is... Our handbook on conference interpreting is actually valuable f for precisely that yeah. discussion because then people can start mapping the differences and similarities much more easily. Yeah, and I know you uh, promote a lot, in, uh, Jonathan, the idea of interpreting is interpreting, which I agree on in principle. Uh, but if you, just as you say, if you want to argue that interpreting is a general uh, task or a, or, a, or a general occupation that has different sides to it, maybe, or different fields, then we have to also figure out uh, how, how is it similar and how is it different. And, and for that, this type of volume serves a, a good purpose as well. So I think you've alluded to it um, a little bit already, but I think that the question is, who who is this handbook for? Did you have a specific audience in mind or is it really more general because you said you're trying to cover pretty much all of conference interpreting, which seems like a daunting task? I think it's it's for the community to start with, for the researchers, but also for the trainers, for the students. Um, and then also for the practitioners, that was one thing that we felt was particularly important. And I mean, this is one reason why we invited you guys. Um, we really felt that um, even though in many chapters you will find that the pra practical aspects are always there, um, they are always covered. Um, but uh, still, we wanted to make sure that we had pr pr practitioners on board who would take this particular perspective. I was hoping that that it could be this type of handbook where uh, when you start teaching a conference interpreting student, you can use it because then you can use the first chapters of the book where we talk about the fundamentals and the different modes and, and it's very sort of practical into the, the profession of uh, conference interpreting. And then uh, also for a practitioner or for someone who's trying to get an overview of what uh, conference interpreting is, we have the uh, section about the different countries and the different settings and uh, mm. and where does it happen. And these chapters are also very, uh, I mean, some of them or most of them, I'd say, are written by both practitioners and teachers and researchers, so they they are very hands-on. And then coming up to the later uh, sections in the book, uh, that could be used for our master students or a beginning PhD student, uh, where we have an overview of more um, research aspects of conference interpreting. And then finally, uh, at the end, we have the sort of uh, the new openings or the new venues of, of conference interpreting where we look at both uh, the uh, this infamous or existing or non-existing gap between the, the practice and the, and the research or the profession and re the research, but also completely new things like uh, mindfulness and, and in conference interpreting and, and, um, and of course, the technology that we all uh, struggle more or less with currently. Yeah, exactly. And sign language. We shouldn't forget sign language. 
Yes, excellent point. Maybe we can, we can start a little bit at the beginning because I mean, uh, Jonathan has published books before. I've published books before, but uh, none of us, or neither of us, have published a, a handbook like this with, as you just said, over seventy contributors. So, how does a project like this start? Do, do you have like a, a basic structure on the back of a napkin? Do you have specific people that you definitely want to have as contributors? How how do, how does that start? I mean, it's it's like, you know, like any interpreter knows who they want to take into the booth because they know the, the interpreters um, who have the language pair. They know the interpreters who can deal with certain settings, with certain assignments, yes. with certain situations, um, etc. And the same applies to us. I mean, we know the conference interpreting um, academic and scientific community. We would um, quite know quite well. Um, who is, you know, actually tackling which subject matter, who is an expert in what field and subfield. Uh, so obviously we discussed it amongst each other and we came up with a list of people that we thought would be just the people who could, would have something in depth and interesting to say on the matter. Uh, and then we started to um, invite those people. And we're quite lucky. I mean, we did have a couple of um, rejections and um, no's to our invitation, um, but and which is actually also due to the fact that there were about five uh, Routledge handbooks in the pipeline, and people just couldn't cope type uh, type wise. Yeah. I mean, they just yeah. didn't have the capacity to deal with it. Um, and we were a little bit astonished because we had not been made aware of the fact that there were other handbooks also in the pipeline. Hmm. So, but on the whole. Um, I mean, what, Elizabeth, 90% of yeah. people that we wanted to have on, um, yeah, gave us um, a yes, accepted our invitation. Um, and as you can see from the table of content, um, they are all there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the they people are. we wanted to yeah. have on board, they are there. And this is fantastic. One point we figured out, oh, but this person would be perfect for that chapter. Oh, but this person too. Uh, so when we'd done that a couple of times, we were like, okay, so let's start, uh, ask people if they can co-author. Uh, so a lot of the chapters are co-authored, and that is because we have actually asked them to do that. Because there are obviously, in, in you know, when a field matures, there are several people who knows a lot about a certain topic or a certain area. So what, what not better than for these experts in the field to collaborate? And many of them had not collaborated before. And we approached them quite frankly and said that we think you would be perfect to write this chapter together and would you agree to do so? And the same thing there, almost all of those that we approached uh, agreed to do it, which we found also very generous. And because it's not easy, I mean, uh, especially... Then you have to know both about the uh, how when you publish in academy in hu in uh, human sciences, uh, it is you get more points or you get more credits if you uh, publish as a single author than as a double author, and so therefore uh, going doing this project together with us as co-authors uh, was also very generous from the community. And another generous thing from the community as well, we talked about all these different handbooks that started coming out. And in the beginning, we were quite uh, shocked and thought that, you know, how can we all contribute? But we actually sat down with a few of the other editors and discussed what you know, what What will you be writing about? So we don't write about the same thing. How do we draw the lines between the different uh, handbooks? Because all of us, of course, wanted to have something rather than competing, but having something that could complete each other. That's, that sounds lovely. You, you did a little bit of community building as well. Sorry, Pihela, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in some cases it didn't work out. Uh, we didn't get the person we had thought would be the right person to do it. But then people from the community suggested other people. We approached those. And in a couple of cases, we even ended up having, a, um, you know, an author was, who was even more qualified uh, or more expert in the matter. And uh, so it, yeah, it it sometimes takes on its own dynamics and works out really well. Mm. Mm. What really impresses me is that I'm used to seeing in handbooks and encyclopedias a certain subset of the field that appear over and over again. And there's a real amazing cross-section in this of you've, you've got the 
the expected names, but you've also got some people who's working like, oh, I, I need to go and look that person up. <laughs> um, were, were there times that you were surprised at people who said yes or surprised at the people whose names that came up? Or was it always people that you would, kind of names you were expecting? Sometimes you don't, sometimes you think that because you, you read the last couple of, of contribution an author has, or you are not up, fully updated with contributions from an author. So you think that they're an expert in a certain area, and then you realize while, uh, you know, looking into that author that in fact that author has published a lot in this other really interesting area as well mm. uh, so uh, sometimes we had a you know a short swap or change of direction actually uh, but also we were happy to see that new names came up uh, new names to us as well that uh, you know by asking around and digging around a little bit and new very good names not uh, just, uh, I mean, the community is growing, so we we can't know everyone, of course. And uh, it's, but it's great to see that new names are coming up and new really good uh, contributions are are made. Mm. Yeah, and and we had all those suggestions and recommendations from people, and then in some cases we had to really search for people. You know, in a yeah, we had to to be uh, yeah to to um, be um, in a, in in a kind of. Um, yeah, for, for instance, for the India chapter, I was, you know, head on. I mean, I, I was, I was certain, and um, I really wanted to have this chapter on India, uh, but I wasn't quite sure who could do it because, I mean, would you know who is an expert? <laughs> so um, we started to search around with Aik, and we found the head of the the, the regional head uh, for India. Um, we asked her, and then she um, recommended this professor at the uh, Delhi University, um, and um, they teamed up together, which was perfect because she came from the more practical side, and um, the professor came from the more theoretical side. And it turned out they were just the team we needed for this for this kind of chapter. But other than that, I think we had rather more chapters than we had initially yeah. thought of. Then less, yeah, because you know, yeah, as yeah. you start uh, digging into it, uh, you realize you want also this chapter. You should have one on that matter, etc. And um, and and in in two cases, we even you know at a at a rather late stage, we realized, oh God, we don't have a chapter on that, and and it would perfectly match, and it would also need to be there. So at a very late stage, we um, started to approach authors for those two chapter. And we're just very lucky for these people to say, yes, we can do it um, at a short notice. It really does testify to the breadth of research and conference interpreting, because a lot of people who've you know, trained as conference interpreters or who know about, about conference interpreting might know things, you know, they may expect something on note taking or um, they, they may expect something on quality and norms, but there's an incredible breadth of research mm. and really showing how vital and how alive the conference interpreting research and practice community really is right now. Mm, yeah, and with many new openings, new fields. Now, since you mentioned the pandemic, did, did that, um, I don't know, the, the project probably started before the pandemic began, or at least the first uh, ideas, I'm guessing. Did that influence the project at all? But Because, I mean, the, the, the work is, is mostly distributed, I think, but did it maybe change deadlines or uh, anything else in the project? Michaela started being very determined, saying that we will not let this, um, you know, delay us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and I was uh, totally behind that. So we worked really hard to be able to continue on, on the timeline despite the pandemic. But obviously, one thing that was hard for the authors was that if, if we publish a book uh, right in the middle of or towards the end of the pandemic, uh, we can't just have it without any mention of the pandemic. But a lot mm -hmm. of it, we don't know how it will unfold. So uh, we had a demand on all the authors that they have to deal to discuss the pandemic in their chapters. But uh, But it is a challenge for the authors, of course. I mean, they were just excellent. You know, yeah. they they all tried to make sure to deliver in time, and they they all mm. did their best. So uh, we did manage to stick to our timeline and to our deadline. And we should also mention Sergio Viaggio because that was really sad. Yes. He yes. Uh, came on to the project in 
uh, a typical Sergio way, being very happy and, of course, and no problem. And yeah. he was adapting to all our ideas and suggestions and so easy to work with. Uh, and by the time that the chapter was slowly coming to an end, uh, suddenly, I think we exchanged emails only a couple of weeks before, and then suddenly uh, the news of his death hit us. So that was really yeah. uh, sad and very um, yeah, abrupt to the project. Not that it, you know, it, it didn't stop us, but it definitely put, a, um, it made COVID very real. But is, is his contribution still in the book to some extent? Oh, or? yes. He's a co-author yeah. of the diplomatic uh, interpreting chapter. Excellent. So the two co-authors finished it. One of them gave me the bio of Sergio um, because that we didn't have and he mm -hmm. supplied it. Um, so his name is still on. He, he wrote his, his part of the contribution and of the chapter. Wonderful. Yes, yeah. yes. So he's definitely on. And um, maybe he has some ways of you know knowing about it but but he knew yeah. i mean he um, he was still um with us at at the point when we um confirmed to him uh, that um everything was accepted everything was confirmed and that he would Lovely. be in the book so he, yeah. he knows that he got to know great that. yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting and i mean jonathan you, you will have made Similar experiences, uh, I suppose, with the whole deadline and time aspect of such a book project, because um, I think the research publications are notorious for taking a long time and for having these various rounds. And we should probably uh, talk a little bit about the peer review process as well. But um, it feels like it's a very long project, but then you have these deadlines coming, you know, very, very quickly. And then suddenly there's the next deadline. So uh, what did that with? Did that feel like? Did it did it all fly by, or did, did it feel like a very long project? What what was the experience on on your end? Well, it depends on where we were in the timeline, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When we had when all the forty chapters had come in, it felt like it really flew by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there were phases which were very tight, obviously, um, mm. and a lot had to be done uh, in, in, in very little time. And there were other phases which where we could concentrate on other work as well. But um, I, I actually checked it. We sent out the invitations in uh, spring 2019, early mm -hmm. spring 2019, and we submitted the full volume in May 2021. So it was really a two-year project, which was very good for that kind of That's volume with, yeah. with 40 chapters. And um, and throughout this period, I would say we were busy with it. You know, you have to send out the invitations. You have to see what you get. You have to find people um, for the chapters where you don't get um, a confirmation or, or for additional chapters that come up. You have to discuss co-authorships, etc., etc. Uh, then you have to see the abstracts that come in um, and um, comment on them. Then you wait for the actual first drafts, but the first drafts are really only drafts and manuscripts. I mean, they are yes. they are quite some way from from where you end up um, in the process. Um, and then you have to go through all these various steps. So. Two years is not really a lot of time for that kind of process. And then you have to coordinate with the publishing house, etc. Um, yeah. And I mean, and we also, I, when you're an editor, you follow the project very closely because we have an idea, of course, even though the, the authors are, of course, allowed to write their own uh, chapter. But as editors, we have an idea of how we would like the book to be. So obviously, sometimes we uh, propose quite, strictly you know you this is what we'd like you to write <laughs> fair uh, enough it's your but, book yeah. yeah and exactly and and if you want all the chapters to be seen as a whole uh we for example we don't want uh, different authors to talk about the same thing in two different chapters so that might be one thing where we say that no this is not you cannot you cannot talk about this because the other author will take it up and so on that also depends on our own working process but we were quite decided from the beginning that we wanted this to be a peer-reviewed handbook, not just reviewed by Michaela and I, but but that every every chapter should also be peer-reviewed by another uh, person. So, and most of the authors in the book uh, were uh, generous enough to peer-review for us. Uh, and then we had somewhere where we wanted special expertise uh, to double-check. So we also had external 
peer reviewers for a few chapters. And obviously, it's not like when you peer review for a journal where the journal editor will then tell you, sorry, this cannot go into our journal. Uh, but we wanted a peer review where uh, people would say that, um, you know, you have you have not covered this very important area or um, the way you describe this research proje- process is not clear enough and things like that, which we also uh, got a lot. And also whether someone overlooked really important sources and, and stuff like that. And then, uh, so we had that pe- peer review first and then uh, the authors made a second draft. And for the second draft, Michaela and I read all the chapters. Uh, we were responsible for a different, one of us were, were the main responsible person for Uh, for one chapter, but then the other person read it as well. So it was really a very thorough and quite long process for uh, before we had the final uh, version. And then, of course, when you get uh, after when the authors have responded to the review, we also have to double check that they actually understood us correctly so that we don't get something back where, you know, we meant this. Oh, no, but it became something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. And we were not lenient. We were quite tough, actually. I mean, in two cases, yes. we were at the verge of ex- actually um, declining to accept the chapter. Um, and we had to work really hard with the people um, to get it to a, a stage where we could say, okay, now we can accept it. So, um, yeah. But then we also have I mean, to the- complement these uh, contributors because they yeah. decided, despite that we were quite hard on them, they also decided to continue to work on it. Because, I mean, you could also, as an author, say that, oh, no, but this is too much work, I won't do it. But they actually, you know, they Mm. hung in there and struggled really hard, but also uh, produced a very nice chapter in the end. So, Yes, and hopefully, you know, this will show and authors, editors and readers will all be happy with with the outcome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the listeners, of course, can't see it. But Jonathan and I have been sort of n- nodding heavily because uh, we have really pointed it out explicitly, but we have um, submitted a, a chapter as well. And we were uh, oftentimes on the receiving end of the of the feedback and, and the criticism. But I, I wanted to just state for the record that it was always very fair. And it was always very clear that it was for a you know, there was a, a purpose, you know, we, you wanted to have the, the best chapter possible from the contributors to, to have the best handbook in the end. So I think that's that's absolutely fair game. And it was, uh, uh, at least for me, I can say it was a very enjoyable cooperation. Although, of course, sometimes the deadlines were, uh, you know, tough and there was a lot of sort of detail work involved. And uh, for someone who isn't really used to academic publishing, uh, it, it may have been quite difficult, which was certainly the case for for the two Alexes here. But Jonathan, maybe real briefly, how how would you compare it to the two books that you have published, uh, also with Routledge, incidentally? But wh- how? I mean, what was sort of similar? What was completely different? Um, because you were the one, you know, behind the project, and you you didn't have a co-editor. You didn't have uh, maybe you had reviewers. But what was the process like, just in comparison? It's a v- very different process when you're writing I don't like calling them monographs because I would prefer they get called pop science books <laughs> monographs sounds very but serious when you're writing a book yourself when you're writing a book yourself it will get reviewed in, in various ways but you're the person on the hook for fixing everything the biggest difference that I found was this the first time that I'd co-authored in such a large group so I've co-authored um, I think a couple of times but with one person at a time and there it's just you bounce off each other um, you there was a project recently I co-authored with Graham Turner, which should be coming out very soon, I hope. A paper coming out, and and there it was just bouncing off each other and making sure that we we got everything that we wanted to say done, and you know you split up the work. With this, it was four authors working together from coming at it from very different angles with very different levels of expertise. Um, and so that made it a really interesting process. In terms of reviewing, it reminded me a lot of if you write an article for one of the leading journals. So if you write an article for interpreting or for translation and, interp- uh, translation and interpreting studies or a journal like that, you expect that the reviewers will come back and will find things that need changed. Uh, I remember my, my supervisor once saying that if a reviewer can't find anything to change, they're not a very good reviewer. <laughs> And and so you expect that and 
I kind of I realized um, one of the things that I hadn't paid enough notice to at the start is when you're co-authoring with three other people, keeping style consistent and keeping approach consistent is actually very hard because no one wants to squash someone else's style. <laughs> but by the same token, you don't want it to look like four people have written it. <laughs> and, and this that that was something that I I realized that I made the mistake early on that I forgot that that's how important that is because the last big project I had done with four authors on it was a massive report so you expected different sections to look different because it was like mm. a 40,000 word report and so you that was normal uh, four people working on something so small it it was so small it was an education <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And sometimes it gets really technical as well. I don't, I mean, uh, just style editing technical, which is, and it's so annoying, mm. and but still required. So, uh, like, for instance, uh, the type of, of um, style for the reference list that is in the handbook. Now I get very mm -hmm. technical. I'm sorry. Uh, is <laughs> is not you cannot use a program to produce that, and that was not something we chose. It just ended up like that. So we had a few authors coming back to us asking, but but you know, I put it in my reference system. Why can't I sort of take it out and and it will will produce this reference list uh, so instead you have to you have to choose the one which is cl almost closest and then uh, and then you and then you have to do it manually and that takes ages of course and i understand that it's annoying and for for with i remember jonathan and i having a discussion about the links in the text because uh, some of these reference programs produce links in the text and uh, when you when we submit it to uh, the editors, they there can't be any links in the text. And Jonathan didn't even realize because in his programs it didn't look like links in the text. So I wrote angry messages like you have to take the links away. <laughs> and Jonathan was like, "What links? Where are they?" I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just to explain real briefly, so so a reference manager is is basically a piece of software that that you can use to to manage all the uh, books, monographs, and other publications that you refer to in your piece of writing, and yeah. just to make it easy, you keep track of it. And usually, you can sort of just ideally you can just push a button and you get a nicely formatted list at the end. But as Elizabeth just said, sometimes that doesn't correspond to the house style or whatever uh, specifications that you get, and then you end up having to manually go in and fix one, a few things. One day I will learn, because my reference manager allows you to write a, a custom reference style, and one day I will spend the however long it takes to learn how to do that, because there's a famous thing in interpreting studies that most of our journals, like the year of the reference, then a colon, then the page number. That's not any standard Zotero style. Zotero is my reference manager. So one day uh, I'm going to learn how to fix that in Zotero so that I can just press interpreting journals, beware, and it will fix it all for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can probably have a template or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I, because it all works on templates. But speaking yeah. about this, we really have to mention Livia, Livia Bartas, Michaela, because <laughs> without her, we would have uh, uh, struggled much more. Yeah. It, it was a lot of work and she made it doable by, um, you know, in the end, taking care of putting the um, the formatting of, of the 40 chapters together and, um, yeah, really making them um, transferable to Routledge. That was excellent. Yeah, that yeah. was a, a big help. So Olivia is also a conference interpreter. Uh, mm -hmm. who has uh, uh, worked uh, a little bit in different projects for Michaela and she took up on her to sort of do the final streamline. And also, you know that when you've read a text very many times, you get blind for the text. So having somebody coming in and doing that was so good and so very well done. So and, and just so that we get a, a complete picture, so we, we've talked a little bit about peer review and the different rounds of, of notes and, and feedback, and um, just explain to us briefly what sort of the final steps are. So you, at some point you have the final versions of the of the individual articles, and you you write your own introduction. What are the sort of missing steps that some people may not be aware of? Uh, you know, to, to having a final uh, publication, a final book. 
Well, what else? I mean, you have to um, to hand in the bio notes of all the contributors and authors, and make sure that those those are in a certain form and a certain length, and also to some extent, you know, um, uh, in uh, the same in style and format. And then you have to. Did we write up the blurb? Um, I, I think we gave some input. Ideas and for the blurb, yeah. Ideas for yes, mm -hmm. ideas for the blurb, and they wrote up the blurb, and they then so they the blurb is a short marketing text, if I'm not mistaken, for yes, the book. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, okay. a short marketing text, and then um, um, you have to get the the abstracts and the keywords right because the keywords will then feed into the index. And we did an excellent job. We were very clever and outsourced this uh, to, to Routledge. <laughs> Because, I mean, you know, at the end of the project, we really felt we have done quite a bit of work and enough is enough. And had we then had to really sit down and do the index, I mean, that would have... It, it would have killed us. So um, from work, the yeah. very beginning, we made sure to, to tell Routledge, okay, the index is in your hands. And that was a very good thing to do. We had to make sure that, you know, all the, uh, co uh, the, the copyright issues were in order, um, especially with graphs and stuff. Jonathan's favorite topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all this has to be taken care of. Sure, yeah. And the cross-references, all the chapters are cross-referenced. So if you talk about a special issue, a special topic in one chapter, then you reference to the chapter dealing with that topic. Then they needed people who would uh, write a little, um, ad uh, yeah, advocate it or um, advertise it. Um, it experts in the field like mm. we had Donovan from the ESIT and then we had um, uh, Ric Ricardo Munoz a translation professor who um, yeah, wrote up a little um, a little passage to say what he felt was in the book and why he would recommend the book to the community um, so those kinds of things so I mean it, it, it's kind of never ends you know it's, it's, and you yeah. want to and you want to pick the, the, the people who write that type of uh, promotion you want to pick them really well so uh, choosing someone from the EZIT which is one of the big interpreting programs is of course important and and the same thing with uh, Ricardo Munoz so Claire Donovan was the person from EZIT and then uh, Ricardo Munoz Martin who is in cognitive translation studies, and although he's a translation uh, professor, the fact that he is in cognition and has covered a lot of that is important because of, uh, you know, conference interpreting being a lot of cognition. <laughs> not only, Indeed. not only, but... <laughs> <laughs> But the tricky thing was since most of the experts were in our volume, I mean, you I was know, going you to see who was left. to write a promotion text on your own book. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was really hard to find somebody. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and I was going to say first good choice on outsourcing the index, uh, having, having done two indices, Yes, that's a very good choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That would have yeah, been just too much. And, and no matter how you do it, no matter which software you use, it's, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to get flashbacks. I'm going to have to go get counselling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Um, but, I, but also the, the fact that you managed to find people who weren't in the book to write the blurb for it and the fact that you found people with such excellent reputation says something about the book itself. Um, do you have a release date for it? Well, now we're in the final copy editing phase, which is also uh, sort of an overwhelming stage, <laughs> which uh, you don't really expect when you, you know, you send off the book and think that now this is it. And then the copy editor comes back with questions like, do you want <laughs> double quotes or single quotes here? Or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the uh, tiny details. Yeah. And also to get people to do the proof revisions within a very short time frame, because for yes. that you don't have have that much time, you know, so you, you virtually send them the chapters telling them we need that back within seven days or 10 days or so. Um, so all of this is it's it's I mean it's a yeah, yeah. never ending story. <laughs> But this is now wrapping up, so we're um, yeah it is. Uh, it is yeah. So we hope that it will be uh, published by December, right, Michaela? Yeah, yeah. Actually, November. They are, November. they are yeah. aiming. F wow. They are aiming for November, right. um, and that will be yeah. 
Mm. We'd love that to happen. Mm. And there is on the Routledge page, you see this little uh, announcement um, where you can find mm -hmm. some information and we'll be ever so happy to send you the link. <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure all the links are in the show notes, of course, so people can check mm -hmm. it out. And that if someone when, someone's wondering about the cover, uh, there were only a, a, a limited amount of covers to choose from. And none of them had anything to do with interpreting. No. So. Yeah. The, the the great covers debate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we could have a long chat about, about covers and how far authors can bend the rules on covers and when the publisher just says, nope. Yeah. There's, there's not much yeah, flexibility, that's true. And, uh, but again, as with all things regarding the volume, we immediately agreed um, which one to choose yeah. from the yeah. small selection we had. Yeah, but this so has Between been, the two of you, you mean? Yeah, this has yeah. been amazing in the process that, uh, that we sort of, you know, trip around a little bit and say, so what do you think about this? And then one of us sort of, well, I was sort of aiming for, and then the other one chips in, yeah, the blue one, and yeah, exactly the blue one. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. I was going to ask you a, a mean uh, question, um, and you don't have to answer, but I'd love you to answer. Is it is it more or less what you expected are you i mean i'm i'm pretty sure you're happy if, uh, if not for the, if just for the fact that it's over now almost over but is it is it sort of coming together in the way that you had uh, imagined more or less better yeah <laughs> I, i was hoping you'd say that no definitely <laughs> okay. better yeah, right. i i i think so i will agree definitely it was although i knew it would be a lot of work when i started uh, it was really mm. even more work than I could envisage. Yeah. Uh, but I also think I agree. Uh, I definitely agree with Mikhail. I also think it turned out even better than I thought when we started. Yeah. You know, we have really strong chapters. We have, um, I mean, we have the, the people we, we wanted on board are on board with um, very, very few exceptions. I mean, maybe one or two exceptions mm -hmm. um, who just couldn't make it. And, um, uh, and we feel that we really cover the full range of topics and then we have those our pet subjects you know like a, a chapter on india and a chapter on mindfulness and a chapter on community and conference interpreting and we have the practitioners in you guys um and we have the sign conference interpreting in which normally is dealt with in the community interpreting section um or field so uh, I, i think we are very happy with the way it, it came out, yeah. aren't we, Elizabeth? Yeah, definitely. In many, many ways. Yes, really yes, yes. Ways. And we're happy to say that in the uh, sign language conference interpreting chapter, we also have a deaf conference interpreter present uh, as an author. And uh, and I, yeah, the neuro-linguistics chapter that we got, Alexis Hervé Adelman, which is a, a very, very pleasant researcher and also really digging into new depths uh, of uh, conference interpreting and also the mindfulness in conference interpreting, which for me was the absolutely farthest away from where I am, <laughs> but was, which was super interesting read, okay. really. Yeah, I wanted that one in. Yeah. Uh, and, and then also, you know, do you have to have those names you grew up with? Sylvia yeah. Kalina, yeah. Barbara yeah. Mosa Mercer, yeah. Daniel Gilles. I mean, this is yeah. this is just so nice to, um, yeah, to, to be on in, in touch with these people and to to have them say yes i'm on i will contribute a chapter that was just a fantastic experience and who also teamed up with the, with a younger researcher um, to write the chapter and who was you know willing to and i think that says a lot as well willing to open up to new ideas and new thoughts and Uh, and going on to like like Daniel Gilles, who went on to see what because he's always been pushing this idea of theory in training, and now pursuing whether is there any theory in training? What, is it you know what what we have been preaching as researchers all, all these years? So is it really there? Uh, and Sylvia doing an overview of of uh, what what uh, in conference interpreting pedagogy really is. Uh, and and how it has developed and where where do we stand now and so on yeah so no lots of fascinating 
And she was a, a leading figure in actually developing interpreting didactics, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, she's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, she's really the person to have on that kind of chapter. Mm. And, I mean, she was my conference interpreting teacher, by the way, <laughs> in Heidelberg. <laughs> I was going to say something similar. I got to meet her at a, at a NAIG meeting and was really, I was just sitting next to her at, at a dinner or so, and we were just among colleagues and she was just so approachable, but it, I really felt in awe. So I guess, I think I can kind of relate to what you were, what you were just saying. You, you do get, you do get a starstruck with, with yes. certain yeah. figures. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, I've been in certain rooms and gone, I don't know how I got here, but I'm glad I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also, I mean, it seems to be a really key time in the history of conference interpreting. You know, if we if we zoom out a little bit, you have the the hundred years of interpreting conference that came recently. And, and the volume yep. coming out from that. We have the the Routledge Handbook of Conference Interpreting now coming out, and now we have a EST Congress ne next year. So that's a, another good. Um Uh, evidence, I guess, of, of uh, maybe a stronger focus on research because we had um, AIC, um, I think, funding research more as well and CUT conferences also. So um, definitely very good to see. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Jonathan, did, did you have any, any more questions on the book or it feels like we've covered pretty much uh, the entire process? But I, I would say if anyone's thinking of writing a book about interpreting, it is actually, it's a, it's a process, but it's a process worth doing. Um, someone said to me when I was doing my PhD that unless your ideas are ever tested, you don't know if they're any good. And I wish I remember who told me that. But the publishing process is a very good way of testing your ideas, especially when you have reviewers around. Mm -hmm. um, and good reviewers are there for your good and for the good of what is being written. Um, and yes, good reviewers make you work hard. That's their job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's exactly. very fulfilling. I mean, and uh, it's also a learning experience in many ways. Definitely. Um, uh, let me share with you how I deal with reviews. They are all often a little bit upsetting when you get them because you have you submit your, you know, you tear out a piece of your heart and you submit it to a journal or a, or a volume and you get it back. And some people have, you know, different ideas than you do. <laughs> so you get uh, a long list of... Too. <laughs> exactly. So you get a long list of what you shouldn't do. So what I do is that I... I write it down in a table and I start with my, you know, sometimes offended answers and then I go through them again. And then I realize after a while that, well, these suggestions, they're actually quite good. <laughs> so, so when you've gone through your table uh, two or three times, you realize that what the reviewer said actually has a very good point usually and, and is making your paper better. I, I remember there was a paper that I recently had come out and the, the reviews were, were generally kind and then there was just one, one line in it that said, you should include a paragraph about this. And I emailed the editor and said, well, it's funny, I was trying to avoid talking about that. <laughs> so it's the kind of things that reviewers make you do. One thing that is good to finish on whenever we have researchers on the show, and we've we've touched on it a little bit with, please everyone go to EST Congress. Um, but If you're if you were talking to master students or people who've been interpreting for a while and they think I really want to get into research or even practitioners who say how would I find good useful research how do I get into it what what would you recommend to them? Yeah. Well, the best the best way of doing it is is um, be part of a research project as an assistant or um, yeah or as a doctoral student later as a postdoc um, that's probably the way forward because then you are really integrated into the whole process and you learn uh, each step publication um, data collection data analysis etc etc i'd say exactly that uh, you're you must be in a community and often uh, one tend to think that um, it's 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 going to be so difficult for me to Uh, start research and it takes so much time and uh, there's no use doing it. But in fact, as interpreters, I think we're very lucky because we have a job where we don't work every day as interpreters. Usually, I mean, it depends, but uh, so it means that we have uh, a certain amount of hours that we can dispose of as we like. 
and using those hours to to go into a type of research community and and uh, start discussing and start throwing ideas and um, and also being I think I wrote to you the other day, Jonathan, that perseverance is a very beautiful word. Uh, so you need that. You need that. Yeah. So you have to be uh, patient and and also show perseverance because um, it is very likely that when you start throwing out your ideas, because this is what happens when you work in the booth, uh, there somebody has already done something about it. So instead of getting the answer which you would think you'd get, oh, that's really interesting. Let's do a research project. The answer get you get is, oh yeah, somebody wrote about this here. Go read this article. Uh, so, and then you have to be open and say that. Oh, interesting! Somebody wrote about it. I'll read the article and I'll come back with a new idea. And eventually, and usually, that's how you end up, um, you know, creating a project that you can actually pursue. And because of our work, we have the possibility of pursuing a PhD while still working. So we don't have to go away and live on a very, very small teacher amount, uh, t teaching uh, grant or something like that. We can actually pursue the research while we're working. And also, not all research have, may have to be. Uh, very big or a PhD or a grand project. Mm -hmm. You can work as a research assistant in a bigger project and do a small thing, or you can do a little piece of research that you can share with uh, other groups of people. And the IEEC uh, fund is a great opportunity to do that as well. Uh, although, um, as uh, the, as having some insight in the review committee, I know we look a lot on mm -hmm into viability of a project. So obviously, yeah. if you don't have that research network, uh, it, the, the reviewer will say, well, how is this viable? But if you have a research network and do a small study and come up with an idea for this, then it's perfectly viable. And you should also maybe uh, relate to the people that um, the satisfaction level is very high. You know, you get a lot of satisfaction out of. I mean, if if you can't um, if you can't push it through, if you can't um, uh, yeah finish it off, then it might be a different thing. But if you can, if you have that kind of perseverance and maybe the network or whatever it takes, uh, it's it's really um, highly satisfactory. Yeah. Um, and and very much recommendable. I mean, a, a, a research, a, a, a PhD project, you don't come out the same person as you go in. No way. No. Um, and as Elizabeth said, not everybody has to do a PhD. Uh, so you get satisfaction and a lot of learning experience, even from a small project. Uh, but that I feel is always uh, worth uh, mentioning. Yeah, and also what we what we don't realize, we talk about the gap, but in fact, so many of your colleagues are actually researcher. So many of those you meet in the booth, like me or like Jonathan or like Karin Reithofer or uh, um, or who helped me with other names uh, or Fele Duflou. Those were good examples. There are many more. Yeah. <laughs> or Fele Duflou or Ebru is still working, Ebru Dieriker. So when you meet your research colleagues, go talk to them. Uh, you know, they we are nerds. We love talking about our research, so… And interpreters love to talk about their, their job. So it's uh, also maybe just one more idea is to also participate in research activities as a subject. So I, I've seen, for example, that um, I think Kilian's project is traveling to Brussels looking for subjects. So that's also a good, uh, maybe more low barrier uh, way uh, as well of engaging with research. I, I really, I'm really honored whenever I get an email from a master's student or a PhD student saying, can I interview you or can you fill in this survey? Mm -hmm. um, I, I like interviews because I know myself, I did interviews during my PhD and I used to joke, I, I shared an office with someone who's doing a PhD on literary translation and I used to joke that in interpreting, if um, gathering your data isn't making you physically sweat, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> data gathering is is so in some ways it's the most difficult part because you're relying on goodwill you're relying on a, a chance um often you're relying on people saying yes and so i'm always honored when i get an email from someone saying i'm doing i'm doing a, a research project and such and such can i interview you 
because I, I know how precious that data is, especially if you're doing a, a master's degree and you've maybe got, I don't know, three, six months, um, I know how valuable that can be for people. No, yeah, but if you if you find that you have time, I agree with Jonathan. It's uh, you should always try to answer those uh, surveys, or you know, it may seem annoying, but there is a budding uh, interpreting researcher out there who will maybe uh, be the next. Uh, who do we know? Daniel Gilles. <laughs> so, Franz to try to support them, <laughs> Franz Pöhacker. Yeah. But yeah, Michaela, Elisabeth, thank you so, so much for, for joining us um, tonight for this debrief of uh, the Routledge uh, Handbook of Conference Interpreting. We're really looking forward to seeing the, the final book. And I assume uh, so are you. One of you just said that uh, sometimes at the other end of a project, you you, you have changed as a person. And uh, that's probably uh, the case for, for these big publications as well. But as you said earlier, you, you're really happy with, uh, with the result. And it came out even better than you expected, which is, I think... Uh, a good thing to say and and something to be very proud of. Uh, I can say for myself again that it was a pleasure uh, working with you and contributing the the chapter. And I hope that Jonathan and the the others who are not here tonight would uh, would agree. Um, and it's been great to get a little bit of a of a behind the scenes view at uh, what it's like to publish a book. So um, thank you both very much. And uh, to all the listeners, uh, we of course encourage you to uh, check out the book. Uh, we'll we'll provide the information in the show notes for you to have a look, and then you can. Uh, buy it yourself or find it at your local library hopefully and uh, maybe just as a, as a very final thing um, just real, real quick answers what what's the chapter that people should read first i'm not i'm not asking you to pick your favorite ones but maybe you can pick one that uh, that the people can read first or, or maybe not if you're not comfortable with that that's fine now, it depends on your interests. We can't say, you know, it, it very yeah. much depends on your interests, um, whether you need want some background in the fundamentals, um, in the modes, or whether you want to know about the country-specific chapters, or yeah. whether you want to know some uh, cognitive processing-related stuff, or really yeah. then the, 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 the um, yeah, more innovative things like mindfulness training. It, it very much depends on the reader. I, I don't think we, can't say, we can say it in a general way. But let's say if you're a pr practitioner, you should start with the Troublesome Terps chapter and then <laughs> go on to the mindfulness chapter. <laughs> and Sounds from good. that, you may want to explore the different areas of conference interpreting or the different areas of, of the world where conference interpreting is present. And you would, of course, benefit from the history of interpreting. Uh, and then you Always might want, and yeah, and many struggle with English as a lingua franca. So that would be Michaela's chapter, how to deal with that and the difficulties of that. And when you've come that far, you can also read my chapter about the differences and commonalities of conference and community interpreting. And if you survive that far, then you're good to go into the theories and uh, research of interpreting. The, yeah, the and I, I think bits. the technology yeah. chapters, remote yeah. um, oh, distance interpreting and uh, yeah. the technologies surrounding interpreting, that would be very interesting for most people mm. because this is there's no way around it anymore. And now we have an EST Congress ne next year, quite a few panels that really speak quite strongly to, you know, how much do we know about interpreting? How do we know this? Um, I, I don't know if I saw a specific conference interpreting panel, but we're beginning to, to really dig into the foundations again. Was this deliberate timing on your part that you saw a lot of these things coming or was it just, no, this, this is the right time to do it? It was virtually just being approached and then realizing that there is no such volume, volume, mm. single one volume covering conference interpreting, plus our fascination with the topic. So we felt we would really love to do this. Um, yeah, this is how it happened. But it was not um, a prior master plan saying, oh, it's now time to to finally you know, uh, go for it. It wasn't like that. No. And it might be a little late now because the call has already closed. But if they decide to extend it, uh, the, the call for the EST Congress actually has a panel with Michaela and I uh, talking about the uh, – 
um, the two strands of, uh, if you choose that it's only two strands, but at least in our case now, what we'd like to explore are the two strands of interpreting as dialogue interpreting and, and conference interpreting and what we can find in common and also maybe differences, but, you know, commonalities in, in terms of, of cognitive aspects in the two fields. So uh, we're hoping that we can have a conference panel on that too and pursue that uh, area as well. And when is the AEC uh, conference taking place? Mm, June EST. 2020. Yeah, it's the in, EST. In it's, it's the European right. Society for Translation Studies. Your translation Studies. Yeah, it's uh, in Oslo and it's from the 22nd to the 24th of June. Yes. In 2022. And although Oslo and uh, Norway is extremely expensive. <laughs> it is. Uh, it, I have family it, over there. <laughs> yeah. It might really be worth uh, exploring the possibilities of going there. Usually, these congresses are very big, but they also cover mm -hmm. everything. So, you know, if you're interested in getting a glimpse of what this is about, uh, it's really a good way of getting it there. Elizabeth is on the S board, and you know she's. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm, I'm promoting it so much. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Have they put you on commission this time? <laughs> but I, I think as well the the EST Congress is pro it's definitely the biggest research congress that I've ever been to, and also it's the friendliest. It's one of the few that I would quite happily fork out my own money to go to, because. We, we used to have a saying in Harriet well, that if you want to know what researchers were thinking two years ago, you read the journals. If you want to know what they were thinking three months ago, you go to a conference. If you want to know what they're thinking now, you have coffee with them. Mm, exactly. Um, and so, so EST Congress is That's basically a good one, yeah. the, short of sharing a department with someone, it's the nearest you're going to get to finding out exactly what's on the cutting edge. And there have been occasions where the cutting edge has changed because of EST Congress, because of people being in the room together and going, oh, but this, but that, but this. Um, it, it's just a, a wonderful place to be and it's, it's probably I, I can't imagine how much research ESD Congress must have driven just getting all of these people in the same room Yeah, and that is uh, the EST is also if any PhD students are listening the EST is also funding uh, PhD students with travel, travel grants for the Congress uh, so that's a good way of making it a little bit more accessible uh, and uh, Yeah, and then uh, uh, the uh, Young Scholar Prize is also also handed out during the uh, uh, during the ESC Congress, and the Young Scholar Prize is the prize for the best. Help me now, Jonathan. Jonathan used to be on the board, but the best PhD for the, the past best PhD dissertation that has come out in the previous three years, I yeah. believe. And tiny bit of trivia: as far as I'm aware, no interpreting scholar has ever won the Young Scholar. Mm. So it'd be good to see. No, no, Minwa. Niki, Niki. Minwa. Uh, did did Minwa Liu win it? Oh. won it, yes. Okay, I didn't. Oh, so there has been an interpreter yeah, yeah. winning. So Minwa has won it. But, but interpreted, I mean, obviously, the, if we look at interpreting versus translation, uh, we are a smaller, much smaller crowd, but uh, interpreting scholars, you know, send in your PhDs. Mm -hmm.